0: good to be with you. I'm Pastor Dave Mitchell and uh, uh, glad to be sharing together with you. How many of us uh, today could say, honestly, I am living the victorious Christian life and life spiritually is just surging for me. I mean, there is victory over anything that comes my way and I've conquered all sin. I've conquered all enemy. And boy, am I living the victorious Christian life. That's what I thought. Uh, I feel like I'm in good company. I want to share with you, uh, I read about a guy named Larry. I shared with him uh, email a couple of weeks or so ago. Larry is so classic. Larry's the kind of guy that was uh, heavily involved in drugs and alcohol, immoral sexual behavior, and uh, finally got his life turned around, became a counselor, became an addiction counselor, helping 12 step programs to take place with people who are sharing some of the same struggles that he had. Finally came to Christ. Billy Graham. Great hymn, Just As I Am, was one of those hymns that just really touched his heart. And so he came and surrendered his life and became a believer and a follower of Jesus Christ. And then he began that journey, but then something happened, and he sort of slipped back, and he sort of got back into the alcohol and the drugs, got back into other women that he shouldn't be involved with in immoral ways, and uh, just sort of slipped back, and he finally confessed to a friend that he says, that I'm not really living the victorious Christian life the way I would like to. And the way Larry summarized his life is, uh, is kind of beautiful. He says, my life right now is f- stuck somewhere between just as I am and just as God wants me to be. And there may be a few of us that can relate to that. That God accepts me just as I am, but I know that He wants me to be just as He wants me to be. But the problem is we get stuck We get stuck in this spiritual rut where we're not being who we think God wants us to be. The book of Romans is such a wealthy, rich text. And there is so much meaning in almost every phrase and line that you could spend hours and years uh, combing through it. This morning we're going to, I pray, find a way, if you are one of those that's not living the victorious Christian life. And maybe you can relate to Larry that you're stuck somewhere between just as I am and just as God wants me to be. That this is a day that I pray that God's Word will reveal to us what is required to move beyond that stuck spot. So let me take us into the text. Let me show you. There's an outline that's available for you. And I've entitled it, The War Within Us. The War Within Us because at the end of uh, Revelation, Romans 7... The Apostle Paul talks this way in verse 23. He says, But I see a different law in the members of my body. The members of my body, this flesh. This flesh is waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Here is the great, mature, godly of the Apostle Paul. And he says, in my body, my body, my flesh is waging war with my mind because my mind knows what I should do, but my body is pushing me to do something different than that, making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And so he says this amazing verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free? from the body of this death. Wretched man that I am. That's not what we classically would think of the Apostle Paul, this mature, godly saint, talking about himself being a wretched person. This word wretched is a term that means to be under a hard substance. And is elsewhere translated to be miserable, to be afflicted, to live in a hardship. That's the Apostle Paul. The beautiful thing about feeling wretched, you know, nobody wants to feel wretched, but there's a lot of us that feel wretched when we are realizing that there is a war going on and my flesh is overcoming my mind. I know I shouldn't do this, but I still do it. I don't want to do this, but I still do it. I know it's not right to do this, but I still do it. So why in the world am I stuck somewhere between just as I am and just as God wants me to be? And I think that anybody who is a growing believer and follower of Jesus I think that there is a healthiness about occasionally feeling wretched I fear for those that never feel wretched over the battle of sin because I fear that they are POWs and they're behind enemy lines and they've already been defeated Because the wretched person asks the question that Paul asks, you see it on the screen, it's verse 24, who will set me free? How will I get set free from this? So how do we get set free? First of all, we're going to talk about that struggle. What causes us to feel like a spiritual wretch, spiritually miserable? Does God want us to be spiritually miserable? No, He wants to set us free from that. But when we're living this journey, it, it sometimes allows that to occur. There are several things that I noticed, in fact, four in particular on the outline. In verses one through four, I notice that the Apostle Paul is identifying one of the reasons for his wretchedness. It's the law, the law of God. Let me read one through four. Or do you not know, brethren, that I am speaking to you those who know the law? Speaking to the Jewish people. Put a little bit about the law on the backside, the digging deeper. You can read about it 613 laws and and all the uh, various ways that it's spelled out there. But he's talking about the Jewish people and the law that God has given to them. That the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. And the law of God is constantly instructing me in how I should live my life. And then he uses an illustration to show how the law can stop being a jurisdiction over my life. He uses marriage. For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living. And if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she should be called an adulteress. Because the law says you cannot divorce. And if you divorce and you marry someone else, you are committing adultery. So the law is ruling over that marriage. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. So death causes the law to cease in its authority and jurisdiction over my life so that she is not an adulteress though she is joined to another man so that's the analogy and we learn a little bit about marriage and divorce in that passage but that's not his primary point his primary point is in verse 4 therefore my brethren you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God The law was a battle in Paul's mind and it's in our minds. The law says live this standard of righteousness and there's not one of us in this room that can ever do that. We cannot obtain the law. The law merely points out what a wretch we are. Those who care about the law, and I'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later, but it's this law, it's this self-righteousness, it's this attempt to, in my own strength, obtain God's righteousness. That makes me feel like a wretch. Because I never I can never get there. Every time I read the law, I say, Man, I'm I'm so far short of that. Secondly, the wretchedness that comes into our lives comes from sinful passions. In verse five, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So there are sinful passions that get a hold of me. And the law arouses those. And I don't quite even understand how that works. But something happens. When the law is there, there is a desire to do what is wrong. Uh, just the other day, uh, Joe and I and another were down in uh, Laguna Beach and we went to the Shake Shack. You know the little Shake Shack along the highway? when actually we we're going to the beachcomber, but it's like a two-and-a-half-hour wait. And if I have to wait over five minutes, I'm a very carnal person. So we climbed up the hill, if you know your way around there, and there's the little Shake Shack that's at the top. So we're standing at the Shake Shack in a line, course, and, uh, sorry, I hate to bring out my inner weaknesses to you, but... Uh, so we're standing there in a line. There's this woman with a bunch of kids and taking forever to order. And uh, that's okay. I love her anyways. But as she was leaning in to pay, she rubbed up against this white counter. And as she looked down, she says, oh, no, I got white paint on my pants. And I said, oh. And I looked, and there was don't touch paint, fresh paint, don't touch fresh paint. And you know what I did? I touched it. There's something about a law that makes you want to question whether you can disobey it. I do that on my motorcycle. I did it just yesterday. And this is just has nothing to do with anything in Romans 7, but I just feel very comfortable with you this morning. If you go out Champ, Chapman that turns into San Diego Canyon, they put these new signs up there that if you exceed a certain speed limit, it lights up and tells you you're going too fast. So every time I go by those signs, I go as fast as I can to see at what speed can I make that light light up. It's really kind of a fun thing to do. I think that that's sort of the arousal effect of the law. You want to see if you can kind of get around it. And so the apostle says there are sinful passions that are aroused by the law and you want to get away with it. I had a guy up in our church in Lodi and he could not stop himself from lying. So he told me, he says, I lie all the time. I lie when it doesn't even help me to do anything. I just lie. I can't stop lying. But I just lie even though it doesn't help me at all. In fact, hurts him. Sinful passions. There's some people that drink and they can't stop drinking. Sinful passions. There's some people that use drugs. There's some people that are hooked into certain sexual ways. There's certain pornography. There's just stealing, fevery shoplifting. There are sinful passions either of my past behavior that my mind remembers or there are sinful passions of my present behavior that I seemingly can't stop. And those sinful passions become a dominant feature of my life. And I know the law says don't do it, but I still do it. And I feel like a wretch. Who will set me free from that? We want to learn about that. And then also there are sinful deceptions. Romans 7:11. if you drop down. It says, For sin taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. That word opportunity, as you see it on the screen here, for sin taking an opportunity. The word opportunity is actually a military term where the, uh, they would station the drive to attack the enemy. So Paul takes that military term that talks about stationing for a drive to attack the enemy and he says sin is like that. Sin is attacking me and it's going to deceive me. There are sinful passions. There are sinful deceptions. Sinful deceptions cause me to think that uh, wrong thoughts about God. Sinful deception makes me think that if I work hard enough I can become the righteousness of the law. The deep, sinful, passion, sinful deception that Paul was wrestling with here is that in my flesh I can somehow obtain righteousness. And I can't. And every time I try, I feel like a bigger wretch. Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 11.3. I'm afraid that as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds would be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Satan loves to deceive Sin deceives, so that I no longer see in sin the awfulness of sin. So I indulge. So, the wretchedness. Here is the greatest deception of sin, and it relates to this passage. Satan's biggest lie. Satan's the father of lies, you know. Satan's biggest lie is this one. I can earn my way to heaven, but God will send me to hell. That is the mindset of the world today. There is no other religion. Uh, let me put it this way. Every religion but Jesus' religion, Jesus' faith, our faith in Christ, every single other religion in the world today has bought into this lie. Every religion, Islam, Buddhism, and you go down to the Hinduism, they all have to earn their way to God. But if I don't, that God will send me to hell. That's Satan's biggest lie. Please expose that lie because here's Jesus' truth. Jesus' truth is that God sends me to heaven because I can't ever get there. There's nothing I can do to get to heaven. I can never be good enough to get to heaven. And only a fool thinks such thoughts that I can somehow in my flesh get to heaven, earn the righteousness of God. But I'll earn hell. Oh, yeah, I'll earn hell. I earn hell by rejecting the only means by which I get to heaven, that's Jesus Christ. So there's Satan's deception, sin's deception, contrasted with the truth of Jesus Christ. You and I need to get that truth out. And then finally, the reason for my wretchedness is not just from the law, I can't ever obtain it, sin's passions, sin's deceptions, but sin's domination. Sinful domination, I think, uh, taught in verse 13. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. In other words, the law, it's holy. Its commandments are holy. They're righteous. They're good. So is it a cause of death for me? Well, May it never be. Rather, it was sin. Sin is the one in order that it might be shown to be a sin by affecting my death through that which is good. The law identifies my sin which identifies my death but it's designed to show me what is good so that through the commandment sin would become utterly sinful. The law of God shows me how dominant and how treacherous sin is. Sin is utterly sinful. Sin is exceedingly sinful. Sin is a dominance of growth. It's like a cancer that continues to spread. Unless something's done about it. So there's this domination. Here's in Revelation 3, a classic example of sin's domination. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. Sin's deception, sin's passion leads people to reach a point of sin's domination where I no longer feel like I need God because I'm okay the way I am. And so we move in that direction of self-sufficiency. Self-effort. I don't need God. Why does anybody go to church? Why does anybody need the scriptures? Why do we need Jesus? I'm fine. There's millions of people in the world today who have reached this point where I'm okay. I have no need of anything. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable. Paul says, wretched man that I am, who can set me free? The self-sufficient, dominant, sin-dominated person is the one who never feels wretched. They can't understand why we would feel wretched because sin is dominated in its deceptive, passionate way to cause them to think those thoughts. So that's the contrast. Now, let me drive home my point a different way. Jesus is the great teacher. Jesus teaches us through the fields or wide into harvest, Jesus teaches through the fig tree. Jesus teaches through the vineyards. He uses a lot of the natural terrain. And so I'm going to go to my front yard and teach you again what I've just said. In my front yard is this little patch of these little clover-like weeds. Some of you probably have them in your yard if you're honest enough to admit it right now. They are a terrible, terrible weed. So these clover-like weeds keep on coming back. They keep on coming back. And so yesterday I was out there looking at them and I took this little picture with my phone and, and I'm just so disgusted. I feel like a wretch because I like to have a nice green yard. I like to have a It feels good when I drive home and it's nice and green and lush but I've got these weeds that keep on growing. These clover-like weeds. They have a little yellow flower, you know, if you let it go. You know what I'm talking about? Okay, good. We're, we can have group therapy here about this. And so I realized as I was working there... There are three things I could do about these weeds so that they are no longer making me feel like a, a, a garden wretch. Here's one thing I could do. I could determine in my own mind that those little clover-like weeds, the little yellow flower that comes out of it, they're no longer weeds. They are flowers, yes. They are a good thing. Let's just keep watering going to let them spread as much as they want. And so I'm no longer... I mean, who determines that this is a weed and Bermuda is a grass? Is there some <laughs> United Nations committee that has made this determination? That, yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's free ourselves from this terribleness of classifying a weed as a weed and let's just reclassify it as beauty, something good, something desirable. And you know what? There are some people that have chosen to do that so they never spiritually feel wretched. You know what I'm talking about? There are certain sinful passions, sinful deceptions, and sinful dominations that the world has determined aren't so bad after all. In fact, we call people courageous who involve themselves in certain sinful ways. And so there is a reclassification of certain sins. So that those are no longer now sins. They are good things, desirable things, beautiful things, courageous things to even express. We have redefined marriage, and so now we've got other forms of marriage. And and there will be other forms of marriage when your grandchildren and great-grandchildren become our age. They will continue to repopulate and reclassify Behaviors, so I no longer have to feel oppressed by classifying it as sin. So I could take those weeds and just call it something like a beautiful garden of flowers in my front yard, and I can be freed up. Spiritually, people are doing that today. The second thing that I could do, and I did, I spread weed and feed to kill because I wasn't going to give in. I wasn't going to surrender that they are no longer weeds. I'm going to still live because Bermuda grass. <laughs> so, anyways, I guess Bermuda grass is sort of a weed too. But I was going to sur- not surrender to that, and so I'm going to kill those weeds. So what I did, I, I got a bag of weed and feed before Orchard went out of business there. I bought a whole bunch of them because they're real cheap. And so I went home and started spreading the weed and feed. You know what happened? I, I said, you know, if a little bit's good, a whole lot's going to really kill it. <laughs> so I put a whole lot of weed and feed on there because I'm determined that I'm going to get those I'm going to get those clovers of the last thing I do, and it probably will be. And you know what happened? You see the old dead spots in the grass? The grass started to die, but those little clover-like weeds, they said, bring it on, buddy, bring it on. There were just more of them. They thrived. So frustrating. And Thank you for letting me get it out on me. And you know what happens, spiritually speaking? Spiritually speaking, there are some people who see this sin, this weed, this sinful deception and sinful passion as something that I can just humanly destroy. And you know what happens when I just humanly go all about it and I get all worked up and I'm gonna kill that, I'm gonna get tear, I'm gonna tear that out, I'm not gonna let anything good happen out of that. You know what that turns into? Legalism. Legalism is the attempt by me to work as hard as I can to totally wipe out all sin that I determine is still sin. And legalism seldom touches on things like gossip and envy and jealousy, but legalism loves to go after the sex sins, right? So we got this legalistic mindset that goes out there and it's sort of a scorched earth. I grew up, I grew up in the environment of legalism. Sort of a scorched earth of dancing and, and drinking and um, card playing, unless it's Rook. You know, those things, boy, you know, um, scorched, earth, er, scorched earth. What's wrong with me? And you know what happens? You have a generation that grows up that is just like that dead spot in the grass. They're scorched. They don't want anything to do with a faith that is as harsh and legalistic and as judgmental as that. So this judgmentalism, this legalism is a human effort to wipe out all those sins that we see as sins out there. I'm going to get you. I'm going to point you out. And boy, I'm going to let you know. I'm going to write you a letter. And, and now we got people with scorched earth policy. Oh, look at the piercings. Look at the, look at the tattoos. Look at what's, what's coming to this generation. We need to wipe it out. We need to have more rules and regulations to stop the insanity of all this other bad behavior. And it's like weed and feed that you just heap on it. And and all that it does is dry up and kill the heart of those that we want to to bring out of the wretchedness. And who can save me? I can't save them. My legalism and my judgmentalism will only, will only damage their hearts. Right? So I can't reclassify sin as okay. And I don't want to do the the weed and feed, spiritually speaking, so that I kill people's hearts. So you know what you have to do? What I did in the backyard. I just began cutting it out. I mean, I took a shovel and just dug down deep underneath and just got rid of all that soil and put new soil in, I put new uh, fertilizer in, and new seeds in. So I keep watering that. And I was standing there watching it this morning as I was preparing the coffee, and I was looking at this little patch of, of down, ground right there. I saw birds coming and they were taking away the seeds. And so it's just like, I can't win. Lord. And so this week I'm gonna buy a twelve grade shotgun and I'm gonna show those birds who's I'm gonna let them know who's in charge around here. But isn't that but isn't that a little bit of the beauty of what Jesus taught us? The seed that you throw along the side of the road? the birds can come and steal it away and what we need to do with that nice new fresh fertile soil is to water it with a washing of the Word washing a regeneration of the Spirit Titus 3 Ephesians 6 we need to water it so it takes root so even when the little birds come it's established and it thrives because it's new soil And you know what we need? When sin passions, sinful deceptions, and sinful domination comes, no, we're not going to change sin to being good. We're not going to do scorched earth with weed and feed. We need to completely change the soil. We need to change the heart. You know what Jesus came in this world to do? Is to do that. To take out of us this sin. And all things are new. Second Corinthians five, twenty-one. He takes my sin and puts it on the cross and gives me his righteousness. No judgmentalism, no scorched earth, no that's okay, Dave, that's no longer a sin. I'll let you off the hook. No reclassification. Simply change the heart. Change the very character of who I am. So I become in Jesus the righteousness of God. The law cannot do it, but Jesus can. So we need to help people understand you need to change the actual soil of your heart that allows fertility of new growth to come and deep water it so that the birds won't steal away the innocent, fresh faith of your new start. See, that's part of that struggle when I'm stuck between just as I am and just as God wants me to be. i got sinful passions and sinful deceptions and sinful domination. And I may be using bad technique in terms of helping to overcome that with some sort of judgmentalism, legalism. Man, it's just messy. We need to set people free. Set people free. So how does that happen? Going on, our victory. Notice what he says. We're going to get into chapter 8 a little more next week. No, well, not a little more. That's what we're going to do. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. The law of sin that is constantly pushing me down and making me feel like a wretch. And the law of death, the consequences of that law that is constantly holding me back. God says, I want to set you free from that. I'm not going to use the scorched earth and judge you and condemn you. There is in Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. I want to set you free from that kind of a mindset. I want to liberate you. So how do we do that? Here are the four things that come out of, I believe, Romans 7. I'm set free by believing in Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection. That's where I take that soil and I say, God, I can't do it. God, others can't do it. The law can't do it. The law, as good as it is, can never force me to be righteous. So the law, I give up. Jesus, I surrender. And so he does that. Romans 7, 4 says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law. So I'm never longer under the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to him, joined to Jesus. Let Jesus do for me what I can't do for me, who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. We might bear fruit for God by deep watering. Let the roots grow and new growth comes. Here, Jesus also said it this way. Abide in me and I in you. As I abide in Christ, as I interact with Christ, we'll talk more about that in a minute, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. He bears much fruit. Remember what I just said? Last line, in order that we might bear fruit for God. It comes to us, this abiding in Jesus. talked about this last week. Here's a reminder. If you weren't here last week, I'd like a note from your doctor. But here's what we said from Romans 6.6. 6. I'm kidding. Sort of. Knowing gnosko, which means a relationship with. Before we're married to our spouses... We oida. We know them intellectually. You might have even had psychological tests to see how compatible you are. You know them. But once you're married, you really begin to know them, right? <laughs> and you begin learning things that you like. And except for our marriage, join me, you begin to learn things you don't like. Just kidding. There's a lot Joy has learned about me that she doesn't like. But the beauty of Joy is that she's so mature, she rises above it. It's Valentine's Day two days ago. I can't give up quickly. (laughs) Knowing this, Gnosko, that we relate to Jesus, that our old self was crucified with Him or that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. As I abide in Jesus, as I spend time with Jesus. Remember this from last week? study done of couples that have been married over 25 years. You can always spot a couple who's been married for 25 years because they begin to look like each other. Remember that friendly couple there on the left? Makes you say, I can't wait to be married for 50 years to this person. Look how happy they are. And it reminded me that the more time you spend with someone, the more you begin to look like them. And on the one couple on the left that's sad, on the other couple on the right, it's great although it would begin to irritate me if they always dress alike every single day. There's something, something about that that bothersome to me. But the beauty of spending time with Jesus is you begin to look like Him. You begin to act like Him. So let me just drill that home again. Spend time alone with Jesus. Read the Gospels. Read what Jesus said. Watch what Jesus did. Abide in Him through the Word. And then say, God, as Jesus handled that woman at the well, as Jesus handled that leper, as Jesus handled His disciples who betrayed Him, as Jesus handled the Pharisees who judged Him, oh God, let me be more like Jesus. Let that be who I am. Because I am in Christ, and Christ is in me. I am abiding in Him, and He's abiding in me spend time with Jesus should begin to look like Jesus. That's the classic of what He is calling us to. And then secondly, He wants to set us free. The second way to to have this overcoming, set free to serve the new power of the God's Spirit, not the legalistic law. I am to serve Him. Notice what it says in verse 6. But now we have been released from the law so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit, not in the oldness of the letter. The Spirit of God comes in my life and I begin to serve in that in that, in that avenue, serve doulos, it means to be a servant, to be a slave. I am His servant, but I serve not because I have to. I love serving the Lord. Why would I want to do anything but that? It's a passion of mine. The more I know Jesus, the more I want to serve Jesus. The more in love I am with Jesus, the more I want to be with Him and what He wants It's a desirable thing. There's this transformation that comes. Legalism tells me I have to do it. Christ makes me want to do it. And that's what God wants. Martin Lloyd-Jones has written some great commentaries on it. He's an illustration of two fields. Let me illustrate it this way. Before we came to Christ, we're in one field. And that field belongs to Satan. John told us the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. This world lies in the power of the evil one. Every setting, everybody outside of Jesus is under Satan's rule. He's the father of lies. And nobody really believes it because he's the father of lies. They've been deceived. So when you come to Christ, you move over. And now you're under the jurisdiction of Jesus. Not legalism, not the law, but Jesus. And I abide in him and I bear fruit for him. But you know what happens? Over time, you begin to look at the other field because it's always ever-present. It's like those little clover things. No matter how much I dig to get rid of them, they come back. It's terrible. I'm, I'm ready to put rocks in my front yard. They keep coming back. You keep seeing, oh yeah, here, here, here. It's still trying to get to me and I'm looking back. And and God says, no, keep looking towards me. Colossians 1, set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. Keep seeking things above. What my mind thinks about dominates how I live. Set your mind on things above. Don't let the field of Satan... And I put that picture of Satan's field as nice as I could make it. You think Satan wants us to realize how terrible he is? No. He wants it to look pretty and green and there's probably, there's probably no little clover weeds in that green right there either. He wants it to look like a beautiful pathway going through a lush valley. Just follow me, Satan says. But when you go to Jesus, fields widen to harvest. And he wants us to keep following him. And then thirdly, I need to set free to honestly acknowledge my spiritual struggle. I love this honesty of the Apostle Paul. There's a whole uh, debate that goes on whether what I'm going to read is when Paul was before he was saved or after he was saved. He writes it this way. For we know the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin dwells in me. For I know that nothing dwells in me that is in my flesh for the willingness present, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. Summarized in verse 18 this way. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present, but the doing of God good is not. So some people say, oh, that's before Christ because, you know, he, there's uh, no good in Him. I don't know a lot of people before Christ that have much of a desire, much of a desire, to do the good of God. On the other hand, You can go, I could build a case either way. Either way. My bet is this, and I'm not a betting man, but if I was, that there's more of us in this room who relate to what Paul is saying right here than not. That I know the right thing, but I don't do it. My simple point is this. I love his honesty. He's honest with the struggle. And he goes to those Roman citizens and writes this in his letter to them so that we could read it here 2,000 years later. He says, this is my battle. And God doesn't want us walking into a service like this, pretending like I am okay, you're okay, when I'm not okay. And this hurts. This is my struggle. Here's where my battles are. I need to find community, connectedness, help, where I can honestly say, I'm struggling here. I don't want to do this. Like the guy in Lodi, I don't want to keep lying, but I keep on lying. Help me. We want to help people. That's why we have life groups. That's why we have counseling. That's why we have celebrate recovery. That's why we have means by which people can say to other people, I'm battling this, and I keep on failing, and I'm still stuck between just as I am and just as God wants me to be. We want to help move you forward. C.E.B. Cranfield observed it and put it this way. The more seriously a Christian strives to live from grace and to submit to the discipline of the gospel, the more sensitive he becomes to it. The fact that even his very best acts and activities are disfigured by the egotism which is still powerful within him and no less evil because it is often more subtly disguised than formally. It's the honesty that we battle. I can't tell you how many times I'll get up here and preach like this. And you know what I want most? I want people to say, Dave, you're so good. Oh, you're so good. There's no one that can preach like you. That egotistical thing, oh, wretched man that I am. The desire should be that we are drawn to the glory of God and that Christ is being exalted. But the ego, we all want to be patted on the. We all want to be committed. We all want to have our egos massaged. And it's that battle. You go back and forth. So be honest with it. And find those that can help you, that you can trust with your honest struggle. And then finally, set free to know God's truth to guide me. It doesn't mean that the law is bad. The law is good. The law teaches us. That's why I said that the Apostle Paul says in Romans 7, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. The law is good because it points out sin. So some people ask this question, if the law cannot save me and the law only makes me feel like a wretch, why did God give us the law? God gave us the law so we can realize how high His standard of righteousness is and that I cannot be good enough to get there. The law is to point out that I cannot obtain it on my own strength. The law is there to point out how holy God is and how unholy I am and that I need the help of another. The psalmist put it this way, My soul weeps because of grief. This is his wretchedness. Strengthen me according to your word. Remove the false way from me. Sin's deception, sin's passion. And graciously grant me your law. I have chosen the faithful way. I have placed your ordinances before me. I cling to your testimonies. We need to cling to the Word of God. And so you have on your outline four ways to overcome wretchedness. To abide in Jesus Christ. To have that kind of liberation where the Spirit gives me newness of serving Him. Where I am honest enough to say, Yeah, these are areas that I'm struggling with and I will find help with those that I trust so that I can get back into the law and say that, yes, this law is going to enable me. And I close with this quote. Robert Haldane wisely observed that men perceive themselves to be sinners in direct proportion as they have previously discovered the holiness of God and His law. And that wretchedness drives me to ask the question, who will set me free? And then Jesus says, I'll do it. I'll do it for you. Let God be that one. Christ, set me free. If I'm really struggling, Christ wants to set us free. Abide in Him. Let me pray. Father God, I pray that You would help us to be the people who are truly growing in our faith. Oh Lord, I know that there's probably a few that never feel wretched and are not even bothered about sin. God, I pray that You would convict them and those of us who battle that more than others, that you would give us a heart of peace. But ultimately, Lord, that we would know you and your grace, your love, that you want to come and create in us a clean heart, brand new soil, seeded by your Spirit, that bears fruit for you, simply out of love, not out of law. Help us to be those people that bear your fruit willingly and lovingly because we're in love with Jesus Christ, abiding in him. Help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.